Welcome back to Pandemic Pass. My name is Casey Siddons, and I am your host. This is episode six called The Takeaway, Grading, Assessment, and Equity. If you missed episodes one through five, please make sure to download and subscribe to the Ed's Not Dead podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't worry, Ed's Not Dead is still here, alive and well, certainly not dead. Uh, Just look for the green Ed's Not Dead logo and you'll know that a new episode with the whole crew is up. For now, uh, this is another episode of the side pod, as I'm calling it, Pandemic Pass. And thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And thank you so much for uh, your feedback. And those of you who have downloaded and checked out the other episodes, uh, please take some time to look to download those. They're pretty short, some of them. And I think they give us a great rounded out view of uh, what this pandemic has meant to so many different people and uh, so many great ideas and thoughts on how we move forward in the very near future. Um, this this episode, as, as episode five, is called The Takeaway, but this one is all about grading assessment and equity. You know, what, one of the main frustrations of working in public education is the perception that change takes forever, if at all. And that's not really accurate on the ground, but, you know, some I, I did hear one time that moving a public school system is like moving a cruise ship and you're, you're just moving the one rudder, you know, and you're, and you're incrementally changing. And, and this pandemic, this last year of being stuck at home has really forced us to rethink all aspects of education. And that's one of the reasons why we, I split this podcast up into different categories like this. But um, if you look at our public education system from attendance to meals to what it means to be engaged, all the way to traditional school-based issues like how we and when we and what we grade, how we assess kids, what are we using it for, promoting equitable instruction. For this next part of the takeaway, which is, again, part of Pandemic Pass, I bring in the incredible, dare I say, I just learned this word, polymath, Rick Wormley, someone with a breadth of knowledge and depth of knowledge in just about, it seems, anything you want to talk to him about. But really, he's the foremost voice on what it means to be, in my belief, an effective teacher and and truly my go-to source for research and ideas on, on belief systems, on grading and assess, assessment. Um, Rick, as an, as an interviewee, is an amazing person. He's so funny and he's jovial and he's bright and he's sharp and he's quick Uh, And as you'll hear in the interview, he takes us through what he hopes will be a major change to our school system practices on grading and assessment and what he thinks our schools are going to look like on return upon return. Um, And so, you know, we talk about a lot of different things, but um, we talk about what does he hope uh, like we can do in terms of belief systems. We talk about, um, you know, the the hunger for trying to do things better on behalf of teachers we talk about what the future looks like in terms of grading and assessment, and we talk about what school systems should prioritize when schools get back to face and face-to-face, whenever that may be. And uh, I, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Again, Rick is such a, a dynamic personality and a great person to talk to, a great person to learn from, and, and I just love talking to him every time. And, and if, in this interview, just a full disclosure, uh, I left some pieces in at the very beginning because 
we had started our conversation and we were just, you know, shooting the breeze. And, you know, we actually started talking about education and started talking about the things I wanted to talk about. So it, it kind of went away from the structure that I had in, initiated or anticipated for this interview. And so I'm, I just left it in because it was a really good conversation, really cool. And, uh, it, you know, there's a point where it kind of breaks in between and I'll note that in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy and we'll catch you on the flip side. Uh, well, thanks again for taking the time with me. I, I won't take up too much of your time. Uh, no, it's okay. Don't worry. I hope, how are you doing? Personally, are you doing all right? So far, so good. Better than I have any right to, to think I, I would be, you know, back in March. You know, I thought, yeah. there goes my job, working with teachers, um, uh, working in schools. Like, I don't right. know, do I need to become a barista or something? <laughs> and then, of course, coffee shops closed. So uh, we wondered what was going to happen. And my wife is able to work from home. Uh, with her job. So suddenly they said no telecommuting. uh, And then suddenly now everybody must telecommute, you know, and and, and work from home. And then uh, I can't tell you how the world exploded with urgent panic over grading. And I'm one of those guys that does a lot with grading, you know, also differentiation and equities and things like that. And so I pretty much worked every single school day since March. Whereas before I didn't have it, right. I remember one, one, um, you know, a webinar with Alberta, and it turned out yeah. that twenty nine hundred people sat in on it, a rep from around the world. Wow. It was me wow. and Tom Gusky, Ken O'Connor, and Leanne Young, the four of us. Oh, that's a, a dream uh, team. Yeah, <laughs> talking about hey, uh, what do you do with grading? You know, now yeah. at this point, and that only just went up. I mean, I I probably get. Uh, I mean, just before this winter holiday, I was getting yeah. four and five requests per day to come do training virtually. Sure. Uh, and, oh, about 30 of the schools said, no, we only believe face-to-face. Virtual has no place. Our teachers will never do PD. And this is over the summer and then early sure. fall. And every single one, except for one of them, has come back and said, oh, my God, we need virtual PD now. <laughs> Do you have any more room left in your calendar? We're so sorry. I was like, no worries. Right, I right. Understand. I understand. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I, 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 no, that was, that's, it's like, it's totally like in line with my, actually one of my first questions, because like really, really the reason for this podcast, my idea for it was mm-hmm. to think about, okay, so we're in this, we're still in this morass, you know, how, how do we have time and, and space and a crisis to think about how do we emerge as a public school system stronger, more effective, because it's making us reevaluate everything that we're, we've always done. Quick commercial break. Um, didn't I tell you Rick is a really great guy? Uh, super fun to talk to. I won't uh, take too much time here, but this is where the actual interview was meant to start. Enjoy. Uh, you know, a bulk of your work with teachers and schools over the years obviously has been towards their grading and, and assessment practices. With this pandemic, we've had to reevaluate 
everything that was once an uh, once an expectation of schooling, including all of our very own closely held beliefs. Um, given given your mantra, for lack of better better words, that I've used myself, that I've stolen from you, uh, that changes in practice to ninety percent mindset and ten percent of actual change of practice. Does this give you hope for what we can do once this crisis is over? Yes, as long as we have political fortitude. You know, right now, because of political divisiveness and toxicity, some people might be battle shy, so to speak, or gun shy, so to speak, in that they don't want to continue to upset the apple cart uh, to some degree, at least politically. Uh, Everything is so fragile. Don't make me fight one more battle. Um, I would just like to toe the line, close my classroom door and have my private fiefdom you know, and, and listen to my own echo chamber. Because when you're, when you're stressed out, that is really a sign of you don't feel like you have control. And the sense of lack of control, everybody's feeling that because of, right. well, the, the rising anxiety with COVID and loss of normalcy, teachers, students, families, everybody, loss of jobs, economic despair, uh, racism, um, ageism, sexism, uh, transgender right. concerns, um, uh, phobia of this, phobia of that, all these things are out of control. And so what I want to do is I want to do more things in my control. And so right. if you're going to ask me to, to be that nervous guinea pig, I might decline to do that. Yeah. However, um, the larger part of the scenario, I think, is the idea that, you know, upsetting the apple cart isn't always a bad thing. It's cleansing. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I want to honor what California is going through and Australia has been going through. But you know, fire is a way of clearing out the, the brush so that new things can grow. Sure. And so if we can take that side of that metaphor and, and of course, respect everything that, that everyone with forest fires right now, I think you can see it as a positive, as a turning point. Like, holy crap. That's, that's the extent of my swearing in this podcast. <laughs> holy crap, some teachers realize I was operating off personality way more than pedagogy. Right. And I need to revisit what I know in pedagogical principles. So that means I need to let go of some things with which I've grown very complacent as my shtick, because now I realize upon critical analysis and an examination, it doesn't really hold up. It's not as effective as I mm-hmm. thought, because now I'm getting more analytical about evidence of student learning because I'm, right. I'm, I want to be held accountable. And I really was I could I could coast on my personality and the classroom uh, um, elements that were there and it, it blinded me to what was really happening. So now right. it's, it's really me and it's got to be pure um, as we do this. So I, I think that's really cool. Uh, the problem is also that if the community can come along, you know, there's a lot of, yeah. I, I grade this way. I teach this way. We operate this way because parents expect it or the school board expects it. And so we have to enter that one question. I think you and I have had the conversation before about, you know, to what degree do we allow people who are untrained to tell us what to do? Are we willing right. to succumb to an untrained mind explaining how to teach just because we don't want to choose the battle? And again, I think it comes down to summoning that courage of conviction. If you have the answer to why you do what you do, Simon Sinek, first begin with why, then you find courage to and, and stamina to see it through the mechanics and logistics of pulling it off. But if you don't have the why or the purpose, you're, you very easily succumb. You give in sure. to what's easy rather than what's correct. So I guess 
I'm excited because this is opportunity for those who are willing to go for it. Mm -hmm. But it does mean we ask of you one more thing. And that is to do a scary thing and, and, to, and to tell others and try to help them come along with you. And that might be yeah. one more thing than people want to, to stomach right now. Yeah, and I, th I agree. I think um, there's, there's, there's a whole group of people who, you know, were scared about the changes of pedagogy that were coming about, but have, like, we know teachers to be, they're, they're, they're flexible and they are willing to go above and beyond for their kids. And um, I, I think that my next question really talks about this. In your book, Fair Isn't Equal, isn't always equal, which is in the second of two editions, just as a little plug. You didn't pay me to say this, but if you <laughs> haven't done so, you need to pick it up. Uh, you noted in the <clears throat> you noted in the introduction something that stuck with me ever since I read it, um, and, and especially in the current times. Um, and this is paraphrasing uh, that the the book itself is a beginning. It's meant to do four things. One is serious reflection on our practices. Two is to affirm practices we are already doing. Three is to provide language for conversations. And fourth one that I found particularly apropos was to feed a hunger growing larger every day for coherent and effective grading practices in a high stakes accountability focused world. And I bring this up because whether we like it or not, as you said, uh, you know, just a minute ago, this pandemic is changing education forever. What are your thoughts on this and, and what our future portends for grading and assessment? I have been, again, overwhelmed with the number of requests that schools are suddenly finding grading urgent and that we can't leave it alone. <laughs> so there is an right. ache in all of us to do right because we're conscientious mm -hmm. people. I mean, we're an ethical enterprise and we have no moral authority to lie. And it feels now like a lie to include things in a grade that really are indicative of the evidence we claim to be reporting. So I had the Washington Post, uh, San Diego, whatever his newspaper it is. We've seen um, city after city, Chicago, Seattle, uh, the Bay Area and San Francisco. We've seen, of course, Virginia, Maryland, uh, D.C. and that area where I live. Mm -hmm. People are ca calling me and others saying, oh, my gosh, we have an 83 percent increase in the number of F's this first marking period. What are teachers doing so terribly wrong? And I'm like. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that is not the lens through which you see this. Yes. There's a heck of a lot of other stuff going on that's wrong. It's not that teachers are doing something wrong here. I mean, teachers might be perpetuating some of the, the wrong policies, of course, and they might be right. just stuck. But it's a huge systemic change, institutional change that needs to happen. Sure. You know, one, the, the intense uh, need for dealing with inequity. And that mm -hmm. access to technology, but also, you know, sleep cycles out of whack, emotional cycles out of whack, people dealing with opioid and alcoholism and, and physical, verbal and sexual abuse that are a new level never to be seen. We have right. more than tripled in the last 20 years, and it's only gotten worse during the pandemic, the adolescent suicide rate. And we have a tsunami. This is literally the word that more than three different psychologists and counselors have used independently. It, with me, as I was doing research mm -hmm. for an article that came out earlier this year, that a, a tsunami increase in depression and, and anxiety and panic disorder, and a part of students, but also a part of teachers. And so, you know, I, yeah. if anybody's curious about it, they can go to my website and read the article on that. But those sorts of things and the inequities that are happening, like, okay, so the parents are using the one machine in the room, or maybe there's two in the household. And 
they can't, the student can't sit in synchronously because they don't have access or whatever the, you know, in rural areas and some urban areas, uh, they have to do some kind of portable Wi-Fi system or park a bus outside for two hours so they can download the various things, all those creative ideas. The idea that now that we are so conscientious, we're actually going to deal with inequities among our students. And, and obviously predominantly because of racism right. uh, and that sort of thing and the microaggressions and implicit bias that, yeah, it was some, for some teachers, it was an intellectual abstraction, but now it's incredibly real and they, yeah. they've, woken up to that. And so they're willing to put, uh, this is kind of a, a weird analogy when you're talking about racism, but they're willing to put skin in the game. Yeah. And, and the idea is that I'm willing to do hard, hard work to self-examine, but also to listen and to try things out that make me uncomfortable and teach the way students best learn, not the way I best learn. Because my success as a teacher comes with student success, not because right. I I t- presented something. Nobody cares what anybody presents. It's what the kids learn, learn and carry forward. Right. So I think that's, this is a great opportunity uh, for that sort of thing. But there's this, this incredible welling ache inside of us to do right. And we've realized that some of the things we've been doing weren't right. Yeah. And now do we stand on the side of what is, what is righteous in a sense and develop a cause uh, that I will do right by these students and I will do right by my profession, or do we just, you know, let it go and crawl back into our hole and hope that nobody calls us out on it? And I, I think that the collective zeitgeist, so to yeah. speak, the moral atmosphere is one of, yeah, I can do this. And before I may not have had the tools, but more and more tools now are becoming available. And now right. if I have the tools, I'm more inclined to try something. A lot of times teachers are very afraid to try new grading, uh, new differentiation approaches, mm-hmm. new diversity approaches, because they simply don't have a large repertoire. So they're not versatile and they're not like uh, agile in their applications. Right. But now we're developing that through, I don't know, Chrome extensions and a- Chrome extensions and apps and new ways of teaching that have been you know, born of necessity, of course, and innovated innovation. I'm struck by Tom Gusky, who said in his latest book, uh, that came out this year on leadership for for grading. I think it's called Get Set Go. You, your mm-hmm. listeners may know of it. He said that most changes that are positive in teaching and education aren't from um, imitation. Mm-hmm. They're from informed innovation, which I really like that distinction. That like I remember way back in the uh, late seventies and early eighties in education, we were all waiting for other schools to buy their computers and make all the mistakes <laughs> and get a computer lab, uh, Apple II GS, TRS-80s, right. Apple IIEs and all that stuff. And lo- I remember teaching logos with the little turtle and moving it yeah. around and all these different things. But we would wait for other schools to buy their their computers and say, now we'll, we'll learn from their mistakes. And we never found a school that didn't make whopping big mistakes. And so we kept delaying purchasing computers. And then we realized, oh, we're all going to make mistakes. Just do it. You right. can't wait for that all to happen, but we can be informed by what happens yeah. with others and do the best we can and then pass that wisdom along. And then, of course, today, you know, within a year or two, your computers are almost obsolete, <laughs> or at least your software is, and then make new mistakes and keep making new right. mistakes. And that's how you grow, not by finally getting to some kind of equilibrium. And, you know, as Nancy or Margaret Wheatley writes so beautifully, an equilibrium is a system at rest. It doesn't require yeah. anything. It doesn't impact anything. It's inert. And no school should be wanting to achieve equilibrium. 
Yeah. Because that means you have no impact. You know, right. we want to do that. No, I want a compelling disequilibrium. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, ships that are sailing ships, not motorized ships, the sailing ships. It's the white caps, man, where you're riding up on the edge and that's where your, your yeah. sails are filled and you make the furthest progress. Becalmed waters right. endanger sailors. I love that analogy. I've used it on other occasions, and I think it really sticks here. I mean, at least it yeah. has catalyzing uh, influence in our thinking here. And I think uh, to your point on that piece, like uh, on the ethical aspect of this, I think a lot of teachers are either they're questioning it themselves or, or seeing it around them. Is what I'm doing, is it the moral choice? Am I doing something that is, a, is morally right and I've had so many discussions with high school teachers where I'm at right now, where most of my experience is at middle school, where they are being challenged in ways they've never been challenged before. And, and like I said, one of the things that you uh, shared either in a video or in a past conversation was when you ask the question of people, is this the moral, morally right thing to do? When it comes down to it, if you can't answer that with a straight yes or no answer, I think it's it, it lends itself to some sort of Reevaluation. Um, I agree with you, but I think some faculties are hesitant yeah. to bring in ethics and morality. They're like, no, teaching is, is devoid of that, which means <laughs> you probably died as a teacher in my regard. Because why do you get up in the morning, go through the right. motions? You know, right. you may have misjudged the date of your retirement. Let's have yes. a conversation. Uh, yes. is what I respond to that because of course it is. But people are loath because it smacks of bringing in politics as well because morality is so closely entwined with that. And I sure. I wrote a whole article on that too. And lots of people have that, that, you know, to what degree are we allowed to be moral in front of our students? Right. And whose morality are you going to choose? Whose values? I, right. I work in a community here in the DC area where we have a lot of military families. We also have a lot of families that are anti-military, particularly I, I remember during the Reagan years and of course, yeah. uh, George Bush, both the first Bush and the second Bush years where sure. Kids would come in espousing last night's dinner table conversation, trashing the military and other kids, their parents are actually fighting in Iraq and, you know, in other places. Mm -hmm. And so they, then they turn to me and say, well, Mr. Warmly, what do you think? Uh Oh, are they asking me as an individual or are they asking me as actually a faculty member of the Commonwealth of Virginia? Because I, as a public school teacher, I am employed by the Commonwealth. And so how do I respond to that? And so I, I in the article, I, I talk about how I made those decisions and mm-hmm. how other people make the decisions uh, as we do that. And then, of course, during the Trump era, you know, people become even more divisive mm-hmm. and to a certain extent during the Obama era as well. But really, it's just, you know, catapulted uh, forward yeah. in the divisiveness and toxicity uh, in the Trump era. It's became become even more delicate because people are getting even more in their own corners and refusing right. to engage in civil discourse. For example, first or primary example, Congress yes. <laughs> and the way they talk to each other. Uh, <laughs> it's not a good example to put in front of no. students, uh, to be really honest. However, and- <laughs> it's something worth engaging in. But again, a lot of faculties don't have the tools to yes. talk to each other so honestly and candidly, or they're like, oh, don't make it so philosophical. Let's just tell me how to set up my grade book, which is kind of whininess, but you know, that's yes. where some people are. Yeah, and I, I, we actually had just had a conversation with Greg Crury, who was featured in the book a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an interview in December uh, talking about his, he teaches in uh, rural West Virginia and a deep red 
part, deep red state and deep red part of the state. And uh, he talked about uh, how he's had to deal with, you know, just working with students who are coming in with talking about fake news and, and all this other stuff. Oh, so, yeah. You know, certainly a challenge. Um, so I, I, I encourage our listeners to check that out as well. Uh, I do have w- one other question that kind of talks about transitions uh, from your last point. Uh, it's about the achievement and opportunity gaps. And, and as you know, I mean, they were as wide as they had ever been prior to the pandemic. Uh, we are now seeing that gap widen for our most vulnerable populations, uh, our students of color, students in poverty, our English language learner- learners. What do you believe school systems should prioritize once we get back into schools face-to-face? What should they prioritize? Well, that word prioritization is huge right now. Yeah. You know, where, which of the many urgencies do I, to which do I pay attention here? Yeah. And one of the things is curriculum overload. Yeah. You know, is this really important? Uh, is it not? And I'm, I'm struck by Heidi Hayes Jacobs, who this earlier this summer, I saw make a statement. And she said there are four C's that you really need to think of when it comes to curriculum. One is, what are you going to cut out? Mm-hmm. What are you going to cut back? What are you going to consolidate? And then what do you need to create? Mm. And a lot of school boards have said, you know, by golly, they're all important. They're all equally important. And that's somebody who needs to put their, you know, adult pants on <laughs> and make hardcore decisions because you, know you that, can't physically I, take everything. That sounds like, do you remember those four squares that I think Eisenhower created? What's urgent? What's important? Yes. Yeah. You know, whenever the schools, we'd have PD that would do that. I would always get frustrated because I'm like, it's all urgent. It's all important. <laughs> I know. I know. But, you know, it's Elsa time. Let it go. Yeah. Let it go. <laughs> It really, we have to call upon it. And I think people are realizing, of course, in remote instruction, you teach slower. You simply don't get through the same curriculum. And especially then if you're doing a hybrid as Mm -hmm. well, as well, let alone if we get back. And I think that I agree, you know, I I don't think I know. I agree with Tom Gusky and his June 29th article about, um, you know, it's not what the kids missed last year that we have to fill in the holes, but it's like, what do we find so leveraging for what's to come, so powerfully needed for what's to come. Mm-hmm. Let's just teach that and move on. But when people say, no, it's all equally important, to me, they haven't done the heavy lifting. They haven't consulted with their subject associations who've done this. I remember one time working with a, a math curriculum supervisor for a massive school district. And I said, you know, we, we boiled this down to 158 power standards. And no, 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 no. So could you help us, because you're the one leading the way, you're the liaison to the society, could you help us narrow it further? And we got it down to 82. And I said, that's still too much. And so we need to get it down, because usually there's four to eight umbrella big power standards, and there's, you know, secondary ones, those are broken out into probably four to eight each for each of them. Right. So for you to say they're all equally important means you're you're not intimate and knowledgeable enough in the field to really know there is a hierarchy. Right. This is more pivotal to the students' future success than this one is. Mm-hmm. So this one, let it go with just narrative commentary, not a letter grade, because it's really not, it, it, it should put that in your radar. So I think prioritization, that's going to be one thing. The second thing is absolute training with ev- by every single teacher on divert differentiated teaching how do i do different things and and that we value that and we don't think it's a like here's the one thing that drives me nuts we think that it's unfair or that it's going soft by extending a deadline when a kid doesn't learn something i'm calling for every single teacher to be gently insubordinate 
to the uniform <laughs> timeline imposed by a previous generation arbitrarily upon the next generation. Grow up, people. We've, evolved, we've advanced as a species of educators yep. at this point. Do not be beholden to a timeline. Uh, so if a kid learns more quickly or months later, who cares? The grade book is right. for the whole year. And wait a minute. We know even better. More and more school districts now are doing e-portfolios and digital portfolios that will yep. follow you year to year because one year wasn't enough for you to come to confidence with every one of these things that we think is so incredibly valuable that you have to learn this one, each and every one equally. And then we're beginning to look at micro-credentialing and digital badges that you see maybe in adults, in colleges, and now they're coming down to high schools and some middle schools where kids are beginning to... They're beginning to personalize what they become really good at. Kids in middle school and high school, great at Python, C++ and JavaScript all the, and apps and all these different things. And now that's a part of their digital portfolio that can follow them. And this is a very meaningful way. And now they become these mini experts yeah. rather than you must do this arbitrary stock sequence. Now, that's exciting. It's, it's a part of creativity. We can really sure. get into that. But the question then becomes... Do we have the, the heart, the fortitude, the wisdom to sit down and say, all right, as a generation that lived before you, <laughs> we think this is really important and you still should learn it. So I need to mediate your relevance so you see why it's valuable. I can't let you escape right. because you need to be a thoughtful, contributing, happy citizen of our, of our future right. adult world, right? You're going to be leading us. So you have to know at least a few of these things. But where do I temper that with a complete a, a dedication to student agency and voice and choice. I think that's going to be a huge priority because, again, students during remote instruction or hybrid instruction shoulder more of the burden of remaining attentive and yeah. monitoring one's own learning. So the idea that we will now prioritize self-efficacy and we will also give you voice and choice. There's a myriad of ways for you to demonstrate mastery. There's a myriad yeah. of ways for you to engage in your own instruction. And it's not just you sit there as you passive recipient. You're an active creator of right. your own stuff. And I honor what in your life you bring to learning's table rather than dismiss it as, oh, no, my inherited narrative is the one you should adopt. No, no, no. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I need to honor the narrative you bring here and see how that's valuable. And so now the teacher has become very aware of, oh, I was perpetuating this is normal when yeah. really it was imposing my normal on somebody else's normal and it's not normal to them at all. And I need to understand their normal in order to best teach them. Yep. Uh, oh my gosh, those areas would be really good. And I think that you know every year teachers should probably learn five new apps and invite some <laughs> students to help teach them yes. those apps. That we're going to yes. now, it's, it's going to be a regular part of every year of renewing yourself to your, your profession. Is you're going to have to do that? I think those will be some of the big, oh, oh my gosh, I forgot one of the biggest ones. Paying attention and laser focus, not leaving it to chance or, or the awkwardness of, I don't have that conversation, to teach your mental wellness yes. and, and emotional wellness, yes. not just student that we really have a hard yep. time. We talk about it openly because teachers are going through a lot of mental illness. And again, there's so much stigma with that. And yep. it could be just, I'm having anxiety with my own family. Yeah. I have worked, I have already engaged with a number of educators who have newly discovered 
uh, uh, panic disorders and anxiety yeah. disorders they've never had before. It's been exacerbated to this huge degree. And now they can't avoid friends and colleagues finding out yeah. about it. And they've kept it secret for a while. And now it's there. And for us to say, all right, we're back in the classroom. Everything <laughs> is back to normal. Right. We're okay. You're Nothing okay. happened. Back to it. <laughs> it is, is really a, a recipe for chaos. It's like yes. a, a willful act of failure, as Anthony Muhammad and other people would say. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, the the amount of uh, of shadowing that uh, people place on mental illness and the struggles that yeah uh, folks are. I, I think kids, are, at least in my experience, kids are more willing to have a conversation about that. This generation, this particular generation, because they it's becoming more uh, well known among artists and uh, famous folks. And and if, if you're more willing to have those conversations as as an educator and someone you trust in a classroom, I think that 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 goes goes beyond anything that. Uh, you know, a, a lesson, a canned lesson could do for folks. And, yeah. and to your other point, I'd like to mention, uh, one of the things that I did in my own classroom this year was, uh, w- there's no real deadlines or due dates. It's you've hit the standard. Once you hit the standard, then you, you, you know, we keep moving. And, uh, one of the first assignments I gave this year, um, I, I, you know, I gave feedback to the student. He, he got the grade that he got, uh, based on the, the standards. And he said, do, do I get any points off for it being late? And I was like, my question to him was, no, if you've shown the learning, then you've, you've, you get the grade. And he was like, but how, do, but how does that work? And he was so confused. <laughs> He's so and, indoctrinated. Yes. But I felt like I had moved the needle a little bit. So kudos to you for that. And, and uh, I, you know, that's amazing, though. But if you do that and any teacher listening does that, I would say, could you just make sure you give a separate report of those work habits? Right. Because that's where that can be recorded. Yes. He goes, oh, now I see you're still reporting it, but in a separate place. Right. Yes. Right. And I, I would like to end on a, on a positive note, as I do with these interviews, because we can we can quickly get into all the problems that this <laughs> pandemic has created. You know, what kind of silver linings have you experienced with teachers and students in schools since this distance learning has uh, started? Over and over again, what you, the epiphanies you just shared, the idea of, oh my gosh, I switched to this other thing where the grade was based on evidence, not mm-hmm. work habits or compliance. It opened up all these new doors to students and they had hope for the first time in their lives uh, that they, could, they, they couldn't do well on this type of test format because I was looking at tests now as vehicles to deliver the evidence, not right. the thing they had to do themselves. The, the test format was irrelevant unless I was teaching the test format. And now students said, you might, I, I could do that through a radio mix? <laughs> oh, oh, that's awesome. And now they're like really into it. And that's really cool. And then um, here's a really weird thing. I do a lot of work with, how to minimize cheating, plagiarizing, and parent over assistance. <laughs> and so I've been doing a lot of webinars, a lot of training for schools and families right. on that, let alone writing about it. And what parents are finding is I finally have a set of tools because, you know, of course, a lot of parents, aunts and uncles and grandparents who are now living as their family bubble in one house yes. are now sitting with their kids and they say, I didn't know how to help my child before. And now I have these kind of guidelines Instead right. of like, am I helping too much? Am I helping too little? Like, I didn't know it was okay to go to a website and look at a model of how something was solved or, or answered, and then take that insight from that, help my child or my grandson or whoever it was, right. go back and create their own response based on a model. And this has been so helpful to me to have these very specific things. So schools are reaching out, training mom and dad more and more. 
And of course, in the course of that, families are going, oh my gosh, why don't we pay teachers a million dollars a year? This is not just about, you know, as one person online has said, about warehousing children just so parents can go back to work. It's not glorified daycare. A state of the art, a craft. Yes. This is like, this is something that, oh, this is amazing. Now teachers do this day in and day out and still have a smile on their face and are willing to go back and do it the next day. And so I think a new appreciation for teachers in schools is a wonderful thing. And then the the teachers who have admitted to me, I had to scrap it. I had to not think like, okay, here's my lesson that I normally do. How do I stuff it through a camera lens (laughs) the same way? I now had to think of all kinds of circumnavigational avenues, Mm -hmm. routes where I could be more effective. And I realized some of the stuff I was doing was redundant or overkill or not needed or Mm -hmm. wasn't as effective as my ego thought it was. And so the idea that I'm willing to tame my ego a little bit and realize that shouldn't get in the way that I should be very open to candid critique of my practice has been so cleansing and liberating emancipating in a way for so many people who are tethered to this way we've always done it. Yeah. And I have seen that over and over and over again. One of the other things I get asked to do a lot is how do you, can you cultivate your own sense of intellect and creative self? Because creativity atrophies after a while, if you don't really pay attention to it. And this has been a golden moment for that. Now I'm saying that realizing those little moments are sporadic. They're happen their hallelujah hallelujah moments but a lot of times teachers are just trying to survive the day yeah and they don't have the luxury of thinking big big time like that but when it happens because our emotions are so raw there is a welling that's so much more grateful than it ever was before for the idea that i'm a professional i have a wide variety of practices i can draw on them and yeah. if i make a mistake and this bombs what do i do the next day to pick up the pieces is actually a statement on my professionalism more than i have a lesson that works perfectly every darn time so i think that's, it's a, oh yeah. and what does that really mean i have seen the extension of grace and forgiveness to oneself yes. and to colleagues over and over again in a way i have never seen before and for me yeah. when i see that there's hope for the world I love, love it. I, you end on such a positive note as I as I totally expected you to, uh, Rick. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate your work and how much I know our listeners will appreciate your your point of view. And and as we as we emerge after this, uh, I know that we're going to be stronger because of the conversations that uh, like you and I have, and 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 the way that teachers think about their work. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show on on Pandemic Pass. And uh, I hope I hope that you and your family are safe and and everything and and your holidays are awesome. Same to you, Casey. Good luck in the new year. All right. Thank you for joining us on Pandemic Pass. Pandemic Pass is an Ed's Not Dead media production and was written and directed by me, Casey Siddons. Music was written and performed by Peter Crable. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us. Find out more on our website at edsnotdead.com. <laughs>